Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 says this, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Sometimes it's really hard for us to understand other people, and sometimes it's really hard for us to know what another person is thinking, what's going through their mind. Case in point, men and women. Men and women are very different. They say men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Men and women think differently. Sometimes we don't know what's going through our spouse's mind. Sometimes we just have no idea what's going on. Enter into that situation the Roman Empire TikTok challenge. Anybody heard of this? That's good. That's good. Not many of us have heard of it. That's awesome. So apparently it started uh, several years ago. There's a lady named Saskia Kort. Apparently she's a social media influencer in Sweden. And uh, she has a number of followers. And she did this kind of poll where she asked specifically men, what are things that you think about? And apparently... The things that they came up with, some of them were kind of things you'd expect, like work or sports or food or whatever. But there's one that came up that they didn't expect, and that was the Roman Empire. And she went on to realize that a lot of guys tend to think about the Roman Empire a lot. Now, then somebody apparently took this up on TikTok and started this challenge, and the challenge was... Uh, women were encouraged to go and talk to their spouse or their boyfriend and ask them, do you think about the Roman Empire? And how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And we have a clip of what it looks like right here. Often do you think about the Roman Empire? How often do I think about it? Yeah. I don't know, it's technically like every day. <laughs> do you think about the Roman Empire ever? How often? I don't know. Once a week. How do you not think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> how many times, like a week, or just how many times in general, do you think about the Roman Empire? What about the Roman just Empire? Just anything about it. Probably not a lot. Why? Not a lot? When was the last time you thought about it? Maybe a week or two ago? <laughs> the Roman Empire was a very big part of history. So how often do you think about it? Not a lot. How often? Once every month? Uh, maybe three or four times a month. <laughs> you think about the Roman Empire once a week? It has a lot of big, like, stories and lessons, like, within the Roman Empire of what to do and what not to do, so yeah. So you think about the Roman Empire once a week? Sometimes, yeah. But not necessarily. Babe, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> That's tense. I don't know, every couple days. Are you kidding me? Not once a week. <laughs> Why? Why? I don't know. 
don't know, a lot of history. <laughs> How often do you think about the Roman Empire? A lot. Really? Yeah. Like, how often? At least once a day. Seriously? Absolutely. <laughs> Eric, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Once every seven hours. What do you, what do you think about? Are you recording me? No. <laughs> Why are you asking me about how often I think about the Roman Empire? Because I'm curious. I feel like it's something you think about. I mean, a fair amount. Really? What? How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Never. Why? Why do you think about it? Why do you never think about it? What's Not a fair question to ask me. I have a note on my phone listing of, of who, you know, also list my opinions on them sometimes. Like, for example, like... I personally don't think that Clodius Albinus counts as an emperor, but, you know, some people do. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? How often do I think about it? Yeah. That, I don't know, I guess technically like every day. Do you think about the Roman Empire ever? Who doesn't think about the Roman Empire? Why would How you often? not think about the Roman Empire? I think the reason this kind of went viral and so many people... Um, check this video out or try this challenge is because women are like, okay, like, that's weird. Why would you be thinking about the Roman Empire? And, like, it's surprising that, like, okay, like, I know someone, I'm married to this person, and I never thought that they would be thinking about things like this. Or for other people, like, guys, and, and some of us don't think about the Roman Empire. It's not like all guys do. And I was thinking about it, like, apart from sermon prep, I don't really think about the Roman Empire very much. And I'm like, is there something wrong with me? Like, should I be thinking about the Roman Empire? And I think the reason that it, like, became popular is it just shows how people think. And things that people think about that maybe we didn't expect that they think about. Sometimes we don't know what's going on in the mind of the person sitting right next to us. Especially maybe when the person sitting right next to us is angry. Oftentimes, we don't know what's going through the mind of a friend or spouse if they're upset. You know, maybe, ladies, maybe um, your husband, boyfriend comes and they um, are just kind of acting quiet, acting kind of strange, and you're like, what's going on? Like, everything okay? And what do they say? Nothing. I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. Nothing to matter. You know, and then they're not fine. And, and you're thinking, like, what's going on? Like, what are they thinking? What's, what's the problem? Or uh, maybe, guys, you know, your wife comes home and it's like, she's not acting right. And you know something's wrong. And you say, what's going on? And what does she say? I'm fine. I'm fine. And I learned pretty early on in marriage, fine doesn't mean fine. Fine doesn't mean fine. Doesn't mean everything's good. It means I'm existing, I'm here, I'm alive. We often don't know what's going on in the minds of those around us, what people think. And in the passage that we're looking at today, I, I think sometimes we maybe have trouble getting into Jesus' mindset and understanding what, what was he thinking here. Like we, we know for sure that he's angry. He's upset. He does some things in the temple. He overthrows the money changers, tables. He drives out the sellers and buyers. So we know he's angry. We know he's upset. But like, what is he thinking? Like, why is he so upset about what's happening here in the temple? 
And there's some ideas that maybe kind of go through our mind of, of why he was maybe upset. And I think we need to kind of look at all of them carefully and look at this story to try to discern, like, what's going through his mind? And then what does that mean for us as a church today? So there's a few options of why Jesus was mad and, and he was angry. And, you know, these are kind of different schools of interpretation of ways that people may have interpreted this passage. The first is that he was just upset at kind of this industry. He was upset that people were buying, that people were selling. He was upset that money was being exchanged. And it was kind of the whole uh, operation here that these things were happening in the religious sphere. Now, the only problem with this is the fact that this was actually, they were actually performing a very helpful function for people. So, for certain festivals like the Passover, people were required to come to Jerusalem. Some of them were traveling from places like Galilee, which was a little bit of a hike away. And so it would have been a big burden for them to have to bring their own sacrifices to the temple. And so this was kind of a service that was offered uh, that they could purchase the sacrifices while they were at the temple and they didn't have to bring their own sacrifices. Also, there was a chance, you know, you had to uh, sacrifice animals that were unblemished, there was, a, there was a chance that they could be contaminated along the way. And so it made sense for them to buy the sacrifices at the temple. Uh, also, when it came to the temple tax, the temple tax had to be paid in the currency of the temple. And so people had to bring their currency and exchange it to pay the temple tax. And, and so these things were kind of a necessary uh, thing to, to, to happen, to have sacrifices, to be to provide for people who maybe didn't have sacrifices uh, or who weren't able to bring them along. And so it was a helpful thing. So it's unlikely that Jesus is like upset at the whole operation that things are being sold or that money is being exchanged. Another explanation is, is that maybe he was angry at the exploitation of the poor or the exploitation uh, of people who were coming here. You know, when we think about, like, going to a stadium and, like, they're charging exorbitant prices for things. And, you know, if this is what we're thinking, you know, people kind of pick up, on, and he calls the, the people the den of robbers. And so people are like, okay, what he's indicating is these people were robbing people. Like, they were charging exorbitant prices. Um, they were just taking advantage of people who were there. Um, there's one problem with this view as well, and, and that is... Uh, in the ancient world, these people were generally thought of as helpful, uh, thought of as being honest. And oftentimes, money changers didn't actually even make any money on what they were doing. It was a service that they provided. Sometimes they made a little bit of profit. Um, but generally, it, they weren't known as like tax collectors. Tax collectors, oh, they, they, they're known as taking advantage of people. People in the temple who were selling, buying, uh, who were selling, uh, sacrifices or exchanging money, they weren't known for like taking advantage of people. And so it's unlikely that it's just like they were taking advantage of everyone. Um, third option, Jesus could be angry at the location of the money changers, the location where things were, were being sold. Uh, this was taking place most likely, and this is even debated, but many people think it was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles, it was the only place that they could go into the temple to worship. And so the, the explanation is, so uh, in selling and buying and, um, you know, having these money changers in the court of the Gentiles, they were keeping the Gentiles from being able to worship God like they should. Now, this, I think, 
probably holds the, the most credence, but and it's kind of part of, it may be part of what Jesus is angry at. Um, however, in this passage, in, in, well, in the book of Mark, we see that Jesus says that um, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. In Matthew here, the, the all nations part is, is not there. So Matthew only included part of what Jesus said here. And so if, if Matthew understood that the main reason that Jesus was mad as it was about the nations, he doesn't include that here. And, and there's nothing that he includes here that mentions, you know, keeping Gentiles out or, or the nations not being able to come in or whatnot. So what is it that Jesus is upset about? Why is Jesus angry? Why is he overthrowing the money changers? I think that Jesus is angry because the people have lost their way. So when Jesus overthrows the tables of the money changers, it's because they've made the temple into something it was never meant to be. Now, when we think about the temple in Jesus' day, I, I've always thought about it like, oh, like this small little building, you know, maybe like the size of this church here, and few people coming in and offering sacrifices. But that's nothing like what, it was, what Jerusalem was like in the temple during the time of Passover. We're talking like 100,000 plus people who are coming here to worship, offer sacrifices. Now, the Bills are building a new stadium. And, uh, you know, if you've seen the rendering, it's just beautiful, beautiful building. I mean, it's just going to be an incredible building. And the, you know, Erie County and the, and the Buffalo Bills are kind of working together. They're both financing that. And, you know, maybe we have different opinions. You know, some of us maybe think that's a good thing. Some people think that's a bad thing. But kind of the thinking of why they do that, why Erie County, you know, helps fund that is for jobs and also because it's kind of a symbol of our regional pride. And so, like, when, you know, it's Monday Night Football and, you know, they show pictures of Buffalo, they're showing pictures of that stadium. And it's like this is, represents who we are. And so it's this symbol of, you know, who we are as Buffalonians and it's supposed to kind of reflect who we are. So they're supposed to open that uh, building in 2026. The cost is going to be about $1.5 billion, seat 63,000 people. Uh, it'd just be an incredible facility. But imagine it's 2026. The Bills have just won their third Super Bowl in a row. Can't hurt to dream, right? But it's October 2026. Bills are playing the Dolphins. You have tickets to go to the game, and you go to the game, and you just, as you're driving up, you see this ginormous building, and you're like, this is unbelievable. You walk in the concourse, you see people going to and fro, buying things and eating and, you know, all their gear on, and it's like, this is like, how could somebody build something so big and so beautiful and so massive? I think that's almost exactly like what it was like in the temple when Jesus was entering. The temple had actually been built by Solomon, you know, hundreds of years ago, but it, the original temple built by Solomon was destroyed in 586 B.C. After that, shortly after that, it was rebuilt. Uh, but in the second century, there was this really evil uh, Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he came into the temple, and he just did terrible things. He basically paganized the temple, and he made the Jews do things like sacrifice pigs on the altar, um, and he just, he was just a terrible dude. 
And so he paganized the temple, and then in 167 B.C., uh, there was this group of Jews led by a man named Matthias and also his son Judah Maccabees, uh, which, by the way, is where, you know, in the Catholic Bible they get the book of Maccabees from. And they came into the temple and they drove out this Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes. They regained control of the temple and they restored the worship of God. Shortly after that, King Herod, or well, I mean, probably about 100 years after that, a little more than 100 years after that, King Herod rebuilt and greatly expanded the temple. And so he built this beautiful, beautiful building. So great that one later rabbi recorded as, as saying this, is recorded as saying this, it used to be said, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. And so it's an architectural wonder. It's a symbol of their national pride. And you can imagine Jesus entering into the temple and people just gazing at this temple, like, wow, look at this building. Like, look at what we have done. Look at how great we are as a people. And then he goes into the temple and he sees people buying and people selling and money being exchanged. And he sees all of these rituals, all of these things happening in this temple. And Jesus knows they've missed the point. It's become something it was never meant to become. Jesus calls the, uh, this, this, the temple a den of robbers. It's a, it's a phrase that came from Jeremiah 7, 8 to 11, which says this, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which was called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. Notice what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah. They're engaging in wicked behaviors. They're not following after the Lord. They're following after other gods. And then they come to the temple and they're like, okay, now we're safe. All I have to do is do these rituals. All I have to do is come to this place and everything is okay. And I think in a similar way, something is, like this is happening during the time of Jesus. See, the temple, it's become this sort of spectacle, a circus, that we come here to do our duty, to offer our sacrifices, to carry out the festivals that we're required to carry out. And we come here and it's like, wow, look at what we've done. Look at our temple. Look at how great it is. It's a place of awe at a building. They're buying, they're selling, they're carrying out these activities. But it's become a spectacle. One dictionary defines the spectacle this way, a public event or show that is exciting to watch. That's what the temple has become. It's become a show. It's become something that it's exciting to go there and see what's happening. Like there's activity, there's movement, there's beauty there. It's become a show. And I think just like Jesus was angry that the temple had become a spectacle, I think he's also angry when the church becomes a spectacle. And I think Jesus gives us a reality check about what the temple, and also in turn I think this applies to the church as well, what the church is to be about. And he tells us a few things. First he tells us that his house should be called a house of prayer. The church is to be a place of connection with God. 
When we come together, we come to meet God together. When we come together, we don't come together to listen to music. We don't come together just to see other people or see what crazy thing Pastor Matt has to say this week. We come together to meet with God together. God help us from being so focused sometimes on lesser things, on activity and performance rather than on worship. This past week, my son and I were going to Kids Club, and I had picked him up from Grandma's, and we were on the way there, and he said, so when are we going to Awana? And if you're not familiar, we used to, you know, call our Kids Club last year, we'd call it Awana because we used the Awana curriculum. And so he's like, when are we going to Awana? And I said, well, we're not, we're not going to Awana, it's, you know, Kids Club now. And he didn't get that. He's like, you know, well, why aren't we going to Awana anymore? Like, I like Kids Club, but, like, why don't we do Awana anymore? And I tried to explain to him, like, it's, you know, we're doing basically the same thing. It's just we're not calling it Awana anymore. We're using a different curriculum. And so he had trouble getting that. And uh, finally, it felt like he really got it. He understood, like, it's just changing the name. And then he thought about it for a second, and he's like, so are we still going to call it church, too? Yeah, we're, 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 we'll still call it church. <laughs> but think about that, and like, of course, we don't change the name church, but like, maybe we need to reframe the idea of church in our minds. Because sometimes when we think about church, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to a building, and I'm going to grab a coffee, I'm going to see some friends, I'm going to listen to music, listen to a message, and then I'm going to leave. And it's like, when we think about going to church, it's going to see something, going to see the service. But that's not what a church is about. Maybe we need to phrase it so that it's not I'm going to church, but in our minds it's I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to meet with God's people. That's why I'm here. I'm not going to see a performance. I'm not a spectator. You know, we talk about a worship team. You know, people, I don't know who, however long back, somebody came up with this idea of like a worship team. It's like, here's the worship team on the stage. That's a terrible name. You are the worship team. The people on the stage are the worship leaders. You are the worship team. I am the worship team. We all come together not to see somebody worship, but to participate in worship, to all meet with God together. But how often do we focus on other things? How often do we get caught up in ritual and performance and miss the heart of worship? A.W. Tozer, uh, the great Alliance writer, once said this, strange things are happening all around us in Christian circles because we, aren't truly, because we are truly not worshipers. For instance, any untrained, unprepared, unspiritual, empty, rattle trap of a person can start something religious and find plenty of followers who will listen and promote it. Beyond that, it may become very evident that he or she had never heard from God in the first place. Because we're not truly worshipers, we spend a lot of time in the churches just spinning our wheels, making a noise, but not getting anywhere. I'd rather worship God than do any other thing I know of in all of this wide world. The church is a place of connection of God. It's, it's meant to be a, a house of prayer. We come together and realize we need God. We need him to show up. That the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is alive and wants to meet with us. That changes our perspective of coming to church. We're coming to meet with God. 
We're not coming as consumers. We're coming as worshipers. I think the second thing he shows us in this passage is that the church is to be a place of healing. When you think about people's views in the ancient world, people kind of had a generally a kind of a negative view towards those who were dealing with physical difficulties, the lame, the blind. Uh, we see in John chapter 9 that uh, the disciples asked Jesus, okay, there's this man that's born blind, so what did he do wrong? Was like, did he sin or did his parents sin? Like, someone must have done something wrong that he's in this situation, so who did, who did it? Is it him or his parents? And so there's this idea like that if you are suffering physically, you must have done something wrong. Um, and then there was this saying that was attributed to David, but David had never actually said this um, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, that the lame and blind shall not enter the house. And uh, the lame and the blind were kind of prevented from being priests uh, in, in, in Israel. Also, some people may have even taken this so far as to exclude them from coming into the temple or certainly certain parts of the temple. And so people often had these negative views towards those who were uh, struggling physically. But it says in this passage that these people who were lame and blind come up to Jesus rather than turning them away, rather than condemning them, he heals them. He changes them. Because that's what the temple is about. That's what the church is about. Coming and meeting God and finding healing. And I'm not saying that we you know, necessarily find physical healing you know, all the time. But you know, sometimes God heals us. Sometimes he chooses not to in his sovereignty. But we come to him, come to church as a place where we recognize, like, we need healing. Like, there's brokenness in our hearts that Jesus needs to, to, to fix. We don't come to church, you know, pretending like we have it all together, pretending like we're so healthy and holy all the time. We come to him to find grace, to find mercy, to find his power to change. Keith Miller, author of a book called The Taste of New Wine, says this, our modern church is filled with many people who look pure, sound pure, and are inwardly sick of themselves, their weaknesses, their frustration, and the lack of reality around them in the church. Our non-Christian friends feel either that that bunch of nice, untroubled people would never understand my problems, or the more perceptive pagans who know us socially or professionally feel that we, are Christ we, that we Christians are either grossly protected and ignorant about the human situation, or are out of out-and-out out hypocrites who will not confess the sins and weakness of our pagan friends, but that our pagan friends know intuitively to be universal. All of us come to this place broken, in need of healing. And the good news is Jesus accepts those who are broken and offers us the healing that we need. Finally, I think Jesus shows us that the church is to be a place of worship, a place of not just connection with God, meeting with God, but also a place where we celebrate who God is. In the midst of this temple complex of all that's happening, this spectacle that the temple has become, Jesus heals these people and says in the text that he's done wonderful things. He's doing wonderful things. And some children come up to him and say, Hosanna to the Son of David. The religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're saying? And they're expecting him, they want him to like shut these, these kids up, like stop them, from, stop them from saying these things. Because these things, you know, 
had messianic significance. And so he's, they're trying to get him to like, tell him to be quiet. Tell him to stop saying these things. And then Jesus responds and he says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. The word for prepared, that you have prepared praise, could also be translated restored. Restored. What Jesus may be indicating here is that in the midst of the spectacle of what the temple has become, in the midst of this complex of, of religious leaders and people who have lost their way, who have missed the point, these children are restoring the true purpose of the temple. These children get it. The religious leaders, those who feel like they have it all together, they don't get it. But these little children, they understand what it's about. They understand that it's about what God has done. They understand that it's about praising Him for who He is. I mean, think about it. Think about the contrast here. These religious leaders are basically angry that God has showed up. They're angry that God has shown up in the temple. Jesus, on the other hand, I mean, He's kind of angry that God is not there in the temple. But the religious people... They're afraid that God, they're they're angry that God has shown up. Because God shows up and it changes their plans. God shows up and, you know, he's saying it's not going to be business as usual. Like, the way things are going is not right. Things have to change. And sometimes, even as believers, like, we get so focused on our own plans. We get so focused on our own comfort, our own security, that God shows up and he wants to do something in our life, and we see it as as a trial rather than an opportunity. Because we're like, we're not ready to do what God wants us to do. We're not ready to change. We're not ready to go where he's called us to go. Imagine getting to that place where you don't even recognize the presence of God and angry when he shows us up. It's a scary place to be. church is to be a place of worship. These children recognize what God has done through Jesus, and they praise God in response. And that's our calling as well. When we come together, it's not supposed to be just, again, about a performance. It's about realizing, okay, God has been present among us. God is working among us. God is there for us. And we know that he's there for us, uh, most importantly, through the cross, that he's given his life for us in Jesus, that All things are working together for our good and for his glory. And so we can praise him, you know, whether things are going bad or whether things are not going uh, bad, whether they're going well. But we come together and we're like, he's worthy of our praise. He's working. He is real. And sometimes maybe we're kind of going through that rough spot in our life. And maybe we need our brother or sister to come along and say, hey, I know what you're going through. It's a tough time. But God's still good. God's still going to use you. God's still going to work through what you're experiencing. And so the church is to be a place of worship where we recognize what God is doing, what God has done, and we praise him for it. The church is, again, to be a place of connection with God, where we come here to meet God. It's a place of healing, where we come and we recognize we don't have it all together, that there's brokenness in our heart, that we need his transformation in our lives. And the church is to be a place of worship where we realize our God is great. He is working. He has done great things. So my uh, son Paul is a toddler. And uh, if you, you know, have had children who are toddlers or have them, 
you know, it can be a very demanding time. It's a fun time, but it's also a very demanding time. Toddlers ask for a lot of things, especially like early toddlers. Remember just like several months ago when he was like in, in the two neighborhood about two years old. It's like they ask a lot of questions like, Daddy, like I, I'm hungry. Daddy, I'm thirsty. Uh, Daddy, I need my diaper changed. Daddy, I want to watch this. Daddy, I want to do this. Uh, Daddy, come get me. Daddy, do this. It gets to a point where it's sometimes it's exhausting. And I remember one particular night um, several months ago, Paul was up in bed, you know, and he'd kind of gone through the whole ritual. We'd read his books to him, and, you know, he'd eaten, and his diaper had been changed. He should be sleeping. And I hear, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And I'm thinking, what does he want now? It's been a long day. Like, what does he want now? So I, I said, through the baby monitor, I said, Paul, what, what do you want? I'm thinking like, okay, he wants a drink or he wants to come this or that. And he says to that question, what do you want? He says, you. You. That's all he wanted. He wanted me to come up and be with him for a few minutes. He, all, all he wanted was for me to be with him. Of course, as a parent, that really moved my heart, but I wonder if God's asking us that question this morning. We've all come here to church this morning, or maybe you're listening online. Maybe God ask, is asking that, us that question, like, what do you want? Why are you here? What are you looking for? How much joy do you think it would bring to his heart if we can say with sincerity, I want you. That's why I'm here. I'm here to meet with you. I'm here to love you, to love your people. I'm here for you. That we could say with the psalmist, as the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul searches for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. May that be our heart. As we come into this place each week, may our heart be set on Christ. May our desire be for him. And may he change us through his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us so that we might have life. Lord, we know that you are the treasure that is hidden in a field who's worth selling everything for. Lord, we know that you are the fount of living water. We know that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We know that our only life can be found in you. Lord, help us not to be distracted. Help us not to be so focused on ritual and tradition and show that we miss you. Whether those rituals are good or not so good, Lord, help our hearts to be focused on you. May we say in the deepest recesses of our heart that more than anything else, more than we want wealth or possessions or good health or good relationships, more than any of those things, we want you. May you be the desire of our hearts. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in everything that we do. 
In Christ's name I pray.